Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. This used to be the time that we would all get together and uh, go out and hug one another, shake one another's hands, and uh, we would really ex- express our love for one another. Just know that I'm giving you all just one big air hug. There you go. And a big old high five. Fist bump, you know. Um, here's something that I have to announce, proclaim. Uh, something's been happening here very recently. We've been getting some extra likes or views on our Facebook page. Because people all of a sudden found out, hey, there's a church in that corner of North Park and Mayfield Avenue, and that church's name is North Park Baptist Church. Who are these guys? Who are these guys that are just meeting here? Is that a new church? Is that a different church? And a lot of people have uh, logged in, and they see my mug, and they go, oh, never mind, and they keep going. But uh, I want give us a chance. If I haven't offended you yet, I, I will. I have plenty of time. No. Uh, the, God's Word is offensive. Amen? God's Word is is not for the light of heart. And we've been going through a transition here, uh, in, as I mentioned before, in the last 10 years. And just very briefly, we started off as Solid Rock uh, Christian Family Center in Riverside, merged with North Park, excuse me, merged with Good News Baptist Church that was meeting here under the direction of Ron Nettles. Now, prior to that, this building has been here for the last 60-some-odd years, 65 years now. And uh, it's always been North Park Southern Baptist Church of San Bernardino. And so what, what happened after North Park Southern Baptist Church of San Bernardino closed in, oh, I would want to say about 1997, uh, Good News Baptist Church came in, they took over for a while, and then we merged with them in 1999. Since 99, uh, excuse me, 2000, since 2000 until now, uh, I have been the pastor here for the last 20 years. Amen. And uh, so the first 10 years, we, we had some growth and some changes and some things gone on. The last 10 years, we have been doing something uh, a little bit different. We have been reforming our theology as far as what that means according to Scripture. And if you'd like to know a little bit more about Reformed theology, please give me a, a, a text message or whatever you'd like to do to call or to text me. But some of you are already going online and say, what is Reformed theology? Look it up. And it, and it, is, it is very radical. Uh, however, it's really in your face, and it's, it's, it's biblically sound doctrine in the history of Baptists throughout the world. People of the Word. You, you look at Baptists, and they are people of the Word, and they hold on to the Word. They proclaim the Word, and the gospel of Jesus Christ is not watered down. The gospel of Jesus Christ basically says that we are all sinners, and we are all destined to spend eternity without him in a place called hell that Jesus Christ proclaimed. But he says that he had died for those chosen few that he died for, and therefore will be spending eternity with him in a place called heaven. And it is, it is dire that we understand the need for mankind to repent. And in repentance, there is a change in our lifestyle. There is a change in our thought process. There is a change in all that happens within our life. And I've got to stress this very firmly right now because when we go into this portion of Scripture in chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians, there is a shift, as I mentioned last week. Some people believe that chapter 10 is an additional letter that was added on, but it's not. Paul needed to make this point clear. When you go into a spiritual war, when you go into spiritual battles, when you start fighting these spiritual battles, there are certain things that you must know about Scripture. We have around us 
these spiritual warriors that are going around casting out and claiming and proclaiming and binding and rewinding and going all kinds of different ways without expressing the holiness of God. See, holiness is the way to arm up, suit up, and boot up to be ready for this battle. And there are a lot of voices out there that'll tell you, no, it's done in this manner. But today we're going to talk a little bit about what Paul is trying to show us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And as I mentioned, in our, in our theology and as we've been going through this, we want to have this uh, thought, this mindset, not only just to have the information, but to apply it to our lives for practical living. So if you want to peg our church in some way, we are expressing and we are learning and we are studying Reformed theology for practical living, for today's life, because we need a clear word from God. Everything else is out there. There are so many battles and so many, uh, all sorts of wars and battles going toward the mind. Everybody wants your attention. And so therefore, we have to go to God's word. This wisdom that is of the world, and I've said this many times before when we started in 1 Corinthians and now in 2 Corinthians, and I've said, you know, if the wisdom lines up with God's word, then I don't need it. I don't need it if it lines up with God's Word. And if it doesn't line up with God's Word, I don't want it. And so all we need is God's Word. And there are a lot of things out there that sound good. And as a matter of fact, they take God's Word and they use it. And, you know, God bless them if they're using it correctly. But if it lines up with God's Word, I don't need anybody else's wisdom. All I need is God's Word. And if it doesn't line up with God's Word, then we need to go back and say, you know what, this I don't need and I don't want. So with that said, let me have you open up to 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and I'm going to be reading out of verses 1 through 6. I will be talking a little bit more about our events. Our church is starting to um, open up. Our church is starting to, uh, to, to make, make its presence known, I guess you would say, in our community. People are really enjoying the uh, the view, what's going on out there. We're going to have a revival service, outdoor revival service, as soon as we're capable of and as soon as we're ready for, for, uh, for the holidays. We'd like to spend an outdoor evening with you and your family to be able to share some uh, time of, of joy, of holiday cheer with Christ right in the middle of it, and we'll call it Christmas, and we'll say Merry Christmas. We'd like to have you and your family come join us, and uh, there's, there are a lot of other things that will be coming up here pretty soon, and we'll be announcing those as well. But chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians, it says this. He says, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness and such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Father in heaven, thank you once again for this portion of Scripture. As we go into the spiritual warfare, help us to understand that we are never, ever on hiatus. We are never, ever just at rest. This spiritual warfare is a constant battle, and we need to be prepared for it every single day. Help us to understand and how to wage this war, 
how to fight this spiritual battle, and how to be prepared and ready according to what Paul is telling us here and in other portions of Scripture. So, Father, first and foremost, I pray for a humbleness and a meekness that will come upon your servant and your servants that are listening today, that you prepare us for battle as we're ready to understand how this is to shape us and affect us in our life, we pray. In Jesus' name, and everyone says, amen and amen. Fighting the spiritual battle. We're living out the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ constantly lived out this battle. Every single day he was fighting it. He was going up against it. And as he went up against it, he shared with his apostles on how to do this. And Paul the apostle took this on and says, okay, here is what we need to do. He says, yes, people are talking about Paul. They were, they were talking about his presence on how he... Uh, his demeanor, how he conducted himself, and they said he was walking by the flesh. He was living by the flesh. Everything he did was for fleshly means and fleshly gains, and everything that he did was according to what they perceived him doing in order to get the popularity. And in essence, Paul had already fought this earlier in the letter. He talked to them and said, you know, some of these people are talking to this kind of negative stuff about me. You need to back me up. Because you, I don't need, you don't need a letter of recommendation from me. You are my letter of recommendation. Your life shows what Jesus Christ has done for you. And so as Paul has been trying to battle these people, which we call Judaizers, or, or those that want to add extra to the grace of Jesus Christ, yes, you need to be saved plus, or you need to be saved and, or before you can get saved, you must, or you have to do certain things. And Paul says, no, you were dead. God woke you up, gave you his spirit, and now you live with that spirit within you. And you responded with that spirit within you. You responded with that spirit within you to live a life of holiness. And your stance now, this righteousness that you have because of his grace, of his work, of his love, not yours, because it is by grace that you're saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. The problem, when, the problem about talking about spiritual battles uh, C.S. Lewis, he wrote, that, he wrote this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. And a hail of materialists materialist or magicians with the same delight. In essence, what C.S. Lewis was saying, some people just don't believe it. Some people believe it way too much. They hyper experience it, and they cause themselves to go into these various types of exorcists and demon fighting and demon prod trotting and, and trying to take over this land that the demons have uh, captured. And the problem is, is that that's not what the Bible teaches. The trouble is that they, with exorcists, they have developed this confrontational mentality instead of seeing the spiritual warfare as it is presented in the Bible, where the devil is fought with the weapons of prayer, the weapons of preaching, the weapons of witnessing, godly living, obedience to Scripture, and faith in the promises. These would-be exorcists want to engage in this hand-to-hand -hand combat, sensing, seeing, and hearing the powers of darkness and striking them with dramatic words of authority. And the air is just thick with this constant challenge and, and going on after these demons and casting and binding and throwing them out and all this focus, excuse me, all this focus upon the demonic warfare where, in essence, God just says, you know, you, what you need to do is know the Word of God. As Paul's going to tell us right now, you need to know the truth. The truth is what holds everything together. The truth is what girds your loins. You see, the difference in, in what Paul is talking about and what we hear today is almost, almost opposite. 
But here is what Paul is saying. When he says, finally, uh, when he's saying in, in verse 1, number 1, in order to fight this battle, in order, in order to fight this spiritual warfare, there are four things Paul points out here that we must be. And the very first one's going to surprise you. But number one, I must be compassionate. I must be compassionate. You're probably thinking, okay, how does that kind of measure up with being a warrior going into battle? How am I to be compassionate? Am I not supposed to be confronting, attacking, killing, going after, slaughtering? How can I be compassionate when I do that? Paul says this, I, Paul, myself, I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. He says, you know, there's nobody been on this planet been more meek and more gentle than Jesus Christ himself. And he goes on to say, I, who am humble when face-to-face with you, I, I don't just jump all over your case and start casting out demons and slapping you all over the place and causing you to vomit green stuff and your head to turn around. I, I, I'm not. But when I'm not there, it seems like I have to at least be bold and share with you. You've you got to tone it down a little bit. Now, remember back in 1 Corinthians, the church was in disarray. Their spiritual gifts that they had received, they were just misusing and and just abusing the spiritual gifts. And and so Paul had to set them straight on how God is not a God of disorder, but a God of order. And it's interesting that Paul, he starts off by talking to the apostles and, and, and talking to the people in Corinth, and he starts to use this military tone, this battle tone. And he's constantly talking about being a good soldier and, and here he says, a good soldier doesn't take pleasure into actually going after and killing. A good, a good soldier uh, takes no pleasure in using deadly force, only when he has to. But always, there's always diplomacy. There's always something that a person should do in order to be able to avert from bloodshed, avert from having to bludgeon your opponent or your beloved, your brother. See, and it doesn't mean that Paul was... Uh, meek doesn't mean that he was a wimp, which is what they were kind of accusing him. He says, no, no, I'm not. This is meekness and gentleness of Christ. The word meekness is an interesting word. It's defined as as correct point midway between uh, being too angry and never being angry at all. And, and meekness is used of Jesus Christ, and it's it's this power that Jesus Christ has. When you, when you train a horse, a horse that is wild and bucking, and you get that horse under control, it is called a meek horse. Not a weak horse, but a meek horse. And a meek horse, just like a Christian, is a Christian using the power that he has, a man using the power that he has, and using it while it's under control. It's being able to distinguish between when to get mad, when not to get mad. When to use his authority and his power, and when not to use his authority and power. So many people believe that as a soldier and as a warrior, as a, a fighter, that we need to be those that they call sheepdogs. There is this thought out there right now that there are sheepdogs and then there are sheep, you know? But, you know, the, the, the problem with that is that, you know what, there needs to be a shepherd. And a shepherd is meek. A shepherd is gentle. A shepherd is one who has his power under control. And that's why we call Jesus Christ the great shepherd. That's why we have pastors that are shepherds because they are to discipline, but more importantly, encourage and love and to encourage one another to to do good works, especially in today's day and age when we see the time approaching. We see the day approaching. Jesus Christ's meekness, his, his humbleness, and his gentleness was par excellence. You know the story of Jesus Christ on the cross. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
He could have said, Father, just slaughter these guys. He could have just breathed out that sword, that de- defensive sword, and, and went out in this offensive sword and just slaughtered everyone. But on the cross, he says, no, Father, they're not, they're not understanding the whole plan. As a matter of fact, in the process of Jesus Christ ministering to people in chapter 11 of Matthew, he says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. He says, you think you're going through problems? You think you're having troubles right now in this world? You think that, that all these riots and all this unrest is really coming down upon you? You haven't seen anything yet. I want you to take all that anxiety, all that mental stress that you have, all that oppression that you're holding on you, everything that seems to be weighing you down, take that yoke off of you and place my yoke on you. Let's trade this. Let's trade this. In 1 Peter chapter 2, if you look at your outlines, and I'm going to read the first few verses, which are not there, for you, but it says this, For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God. One endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. What credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Is what Peter is saying. When you get in trouble, you deserve a beating. Something should happen to you. You should go to jail. You should go to prison. If something happens to you, that's when we start praying and asking God to help us. And, and you know, and, and Peter's saying, <laughs> you, get, you get what you get. I mean, you can't do the time. Don't do the crime is what we keep telling our our kids, our loved ones. And then Peter goes on to say, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And these verses are in your outline. For to this, you have been called. You have been called to endure the things that are going to happen to you from this point forward. I know that we're praying for rest I know that we are praying for healing of the land. I know that we are praying for our government, our people to be united, our churches to come together. I know that we're praying for that. However, if you have any kind of theological training, just a a tidbit, I, I think most of you probably understand that Jesus Christ is coming. If if you don't know the term, the term is called eschatology. And I'm just going to teach you that word. You don't even have to know it. All you have to know is Jesus Christ is coming. The end is soon. Eschatos, last, the end. Eschatology, the study of the end times. And if you know anything at all, you're a theologian now because you know that. And before Jesus Christ returns, beloved, it's going to get messy. It's going to get messy. Now, is it happening now? You know, many people are pointing toward this time. Many people are looking at this time. Many people are saying, this could be the time. I am not here to give you a timetable. I am not here to tell you, yes, it is. All I'm saying is that if you have any understanding of what's going to happen, it's not rest. It's turmoil. For you, he says, for to you, excuse me, for to you have been given, you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself, what? To him who judges justly. He kept kept entrusting himself to him 
who judges justly. Paul is saying, Peter is saying, Jesus has said, entrust yourself to the one that's going to take care of all of this at the end. He says, justice is mine, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And so Jesus says, yes, there's things that are going to happen. Paul knew that Christ's character set the standard for all his soldiers to follow since he commanded them. And the apostles sought to imitate Jesus Christ himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Paul says, follow my example as I'm trying to do the best I can to follow the example of Christ. The example of Christ was placed on the cross. That's the example. You repent, you, you pick up your cross, and you die daily. You do this on a regular basis. The apostles sought to imitate the Lord by patiently holding his power in check. Despite his, his being in, uh, mistreated by some of the people at the church in Corinth, the apostle viewed his rod against them only as a last resort. And Paul is saying, you know, I, 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 want, I want to lash out, but I, I'm not going to. And, and my power, and Paul had that ability to be able to confront when needed to. And that's why point number two is very pres- uh, important. Number two, in order to fight the spiritual battle, I must be courageous. Look at this verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10-2. He says, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. There were people there that were saying, Paul is just a fleshly guy. He just likes to live by the world. He just wants to be able to to gain more. That's why he's asking for this offering. That's why he's asking us to submit to him. And and those are the words that were going around. And those who mistook Paul for a weakling were (laughs) mistaken. Uh, Paul Paul did all kinds of confronting when he had to. In Galatians chapter 2, in your outlines it says, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Because he stood condemned. Beloved, you just don't oppose people because you disagree with them or they disagree with you because you have political views that are different or social views that are different. You confront your loved ones because they stand condemned before God. Brother, you are in sin. What you are doing, Peter, is not correct. You can't expect these Gentiles, is the whole process of this, you can't expect these Gentiles to live to the Jewish standard. We've set this straight already. There are three things, four things that they should be doing, and that's it. The rest of it, they need to follow Jesus Christ. They're not Jews. They're Gentiles. As a matter of fact, he told Timothy, as for those who persist in sin, Paul says, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. One of the things that churches fail to do is to rebuke, first and foremost, in person. But they don't want to do it in public. I don't want to make the brother feel bad. Make him feel bad because he's in sin and he persists in this sin. He needs to be made an example of. And I know that that's hard teaching. As a pastor, I understand. You know, the times that we've done so, it's, it's caused a rift. And unfortunately, many of these people have fallen away, have fallen aside, and comes to tell us, or at least we start to believe, they were never of us because they left us may not have ever been here. 
Paul was always confronting. Paul was courageous. Courage doesn't mean that you're not afraid. Courage doesn't mean that you're, you're just going out and just wheeling your power any way you want. Paul had meekness, gentleness, like a tamed horse, not like a wild horse. He was under the supervision of God, Jesus Christ himself. Even Jesus got upset when he walked into the temple and saw the money changers exchanging money. And it wasn't like they were just exchanging money, but they were using false measures. They, they took a pound of gold, and in actuality, it, was, it wasn't a pound of gold, and it was different. And so they paid them for less than what it actually was worth. See, because in the temple, you could only use a certain type of money, a denier, or the ten- temple tax could only re- receive. And people were coming from all over the world, and they were exchanging their money so they can pay the temple tax. And these priests, of all people, these pastors of the temple, were charging them, not, were not charging them right, and charging the extra to exchange the money. Jesus walked in there and says, you know what? You made my father's house a den of thieves. And he was highly upset. But not just because they had tables. He was upset, if you know the rest of the story, because of what they were doing. Not only must I be courageous, not only must I be compassionate, but number three, in the back of your outlines, I must be competent. I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this. And I'm not going to be able to give it the justice that it needs. But I want to focus on what Paul is saying here. Because in verses 3 through 5, he says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Which is a cool play on words. You say that we're walking in the flesh, well, okay, but we're not fighting war like everybody else does. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now, beloved, bear with me. Let me walk you through this as best I can. In, in so many battles, soldiers are laid and scattered throughout the world of generals, captains, lieutenants, sergeants, and corporals that have went into battle without even being prepared, not knowing what was ahead, not knowing what was going to happen. They didn't prepare, they didn't find out, and they didn't know exactly what was ahead. And they were killed, and they were wounded. In addition to being compassionate and courageous, the Christian soldier must also be properly armed for the struggle. If any of his adversaries imagined that Paul was not a competent soldier, they were in for a rude awakening. His statement, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh, as I mentioned, is a play on words. This walking in the flesh is being fleshly, is being, uh, not having this moral sense of being corrupt and immoral, driven by lust and greed and pride is what they were insinuating that Paul was doing. And playing off this, he, he, uh, the opponent's moral use of the term, Paul affirmed them that he did walk in the flesh. In the physical sense, yes, that, that he was a man, but he walked in the flesh of Jesus Christ, and he also walked in the power of the Spirit. And so all these charges that they had against him, he denied them, of course, and this wasn't exactly what he was doing. But he says, you know, this war that we're in, this battle that we're in, that we're to serve, that, that every, every believer, every regenerate, regenerated believer is involved in this battle, whether you like it or not. And, and it is very evident to see who is losing this battle. You see that in people's faces as they are depressed, discouraged, and they are downtrodden, and, and it seems like everything happens to them. Everything happens to me. Nothing ever goes good for me are words that some of these defeated believers use. And because they use this all-inclusive, all, everything, nothing, and, and, and they, they, they live that. It's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. 
There he goes again. I knew it was going to happen. And they're self-defeated even before they get started. Spiritual war cannot be successfully fought with fleshly weapons. Therefore, the weapons Paul's talking about were not of those of human ingenuity, human ideology, human methodology, human psychology, human wisdom. It wasn't that type of, though he was eloquent. And he says to them, he says, I didn't come to you with eloquent speech. I didn't come with you with this wisdom of the world. And we talked about this uh, when we went through 1 Corinthians and then 2 Corinthians also. He says, you know, I, I, I don't talk to you in that manner because the wisdom of this world is foolishness. It really is. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. But, but, but to, to us, it, it, it's the, what, what God has given us is this foolishness to understand even the simple things that is a stumbling block to those that are trying to understand. And Paul is giving his all to this, and he says, look, if, if it's human wisdom and it aligns with Scripture, I don't need it. If it's bad wisdom and it doesn't align with Scripture, then I don't want it. Focus on the Word of God. To successfully fight the spiritual war requires weapons of heavenly arsenal. Only those that have divine powers can destroy the enemy's stronghold. And Corinth was, like a lot of major cities in Greece, had this acropolis, this high point that was located on a mountain near the city. And up in this high point, there was a fortified place that, that these strongholds were, were built at. A lot of these cities had them. And, and th- those were up high, away from the enemy, and you weren't able to get to them. But in, in older Greek, this stronghold that is used, it was also used as a, not only as a strong fortress, but as a prison. It was also used as a tomb. And you think about this, this prison, this tomb, this stronghold that Paul is talking about demolishing. He's talking about bringing those things down, not with the weapons of the world, but with the weapons that have divine power, spiritual preaching, the, the, the biblical word, the truth. Fleshly weapons cannot successfully tear these things down. And Paul was talking specifically about these arguments, logizomas, these arguments, a general word used to to refer uh, to any and all human demonic thoughts and opinions and reasonings and philosophies and theories and psychologies and perspectives and viewpoints and religions. Well, I think, well, it's important to know what you think, but what does the Bible say? But I believe, well, I'm glad you believe that, but what does the Bible say? And we have this almost like the loudest person with the loudest theory that they believe seems to be the authoritative. He's the the authoritative word. That's the authority people follow. Strongholds are not demons. Let me say that again. Strongholds are not demons. And what Paul is talking about here, strongholds are ideologies. Strongholds are what hold you captive in your mind. There are these tombs that you have been held in, inside of. You were dead in this ideology. You were dead in this thought process. You were dead, but God, by His grace, liberated you. And, and these strongholds that people are trying to fight against and go up against and bind and cast out, they're, they're, they're not even affecting the person because nobody's focusing on holiness. Nobody's focusing on what the Bible says. Nobody's focusing on on living a moral and righteous life in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the notion that spiritual warfare involves direct confrontation with demons, it's it's foreign to Scripture. And and those who use that confrontation are wasting energy, are are, are basically just giving the devil more 
ammunition than anything else. They make, they make him bigger than what he actually is. Thank you, brother. Because doomed souls, doomed souls are forever inside. They stay in these fortresses of ideas. And I don't know if you've ever noticed that when you start to talk to a person about Jesus Christ, all of a sudden your voice starts to shudder and you start getting a little bit nervous and you start wondering, okay, uh, you, you know, and it seems like they already know and they already have the response and it doesn't seem that you're able to get in there because you're trying to use philosophies. You're trying to use your own intellect. You're trying to use what you think. Well, I've got I've to lead them in a sinner's prayer. I've got to uh, make sure that they receive Jesus Christ. I've got to make sure that they hear the Word of God. I've got to make sure that I am at least uh, looking good and, and sound good. Beloved, God does the awakening, not you. He uses you. All you have to do is stand in your righteousness, in the righteousness that, that God has given you. Paul further de- uh, defines sinner's strongholds as every lofty opinion. That is, any unbiblical system and thought that exalts itself above the truth. Okay. See, I mentioned this here a few weeks ago. If you look, you look it up on Google and you'll find out how many religions are in the world, it'll probably say something to 4,800. But the Bible is very clear that there are only two. There's a wide road and a narrow road. There's a wide gate and a narrow gate. There's, a, there's, just, there's two. I can go on all day long about this. It's what God says and what the world says. See, and anything, any unbiblical system that exalts itself against and rises up against the knowledge of God is of the other system, is not of God. And, and the key, here's the key, to spiritual warfare is not a battle with demons, beloved. It is a battle for the minds of people who are captive to lies that are exalted in the opposition to Scripture. Why do you think they're trying to get rid of this? Or they successfully have gotten rid of this? out of the the schools. Why do you think they've gotten rid of this in the courthouse? Why do you think they're coming for the church? Because this is the truth. And anything that goes up against the truth is not of God. You see, everybody has an opinion. And if it agrees with Scripture, I don't need it. Everybody can tell you what they think. Everybody can tell you what they believe. Everybody can tell you what they feel. Well, I don't feel that God does that. Yeah, I really don't. I don't, I don't believe that God you know, can, can actually do that. He's not going to send people to hell. I mean, not, not the God that I believe in. I don't know what God you believe in, but I can tell you what the Bible says. Paul calls us to this spiritual undertaking. Paul calls us to be a part of this spiritual battle because right now we, we are waging a war against what's called humanism. Humanism is, you know, people are basically good, but they make bad decisions. Humanism is basically saying, I can choose God at my leisure. You know, I'm going to put God on trial, and I'm going to choose him. No, God chooses you. You either have one or two ideas. Either it's, either it's God-centered or it's man-centered. When God does the work, then I, all I have to do is respond, beloved. Naturalism is another uh, way of, of working through what, what we're also working through. Naturalists attempt to fortify itself against God by, by just shutting him out of public life. And the object of the warfare is to change how people think. People's minds are being corrupted 
through preaching and name it and claim it and prosperity and healing and demonic warfare and it's being corrupted by everything else that sets itself up against God. It is amazing. It is amazing on how people are not being taught that they need to repent, live a life of holiness. No, come on up, get your blessing. You know, whatever, name it and claim it, we'll give it to you. And, and you know, forget about repentance. I mean, they don't actually say that. They give Jesus Christ lip service. He died on the cross so that you can be healthy. He died on the cross so that you can be wealthy. He died on the cross so that you can, you can get and, and be happy. Jesus Christ died on the cross so that you can be holy. Holy. To assault and throw down the fortresses of these false religions, opinions, beliefs, and philosophies, only one weapon will suffice, and that's the truth. And that's the truth. Taking these, these, the, this idea, these thoughts captive, taking them captive, you know, with the spear, with the sword, using God's truth, believers smash enemies' fortresses to the ground, and they march out prisoners. And, and when you, and it's beautiful to see, beloved, when you, when you are able to talk to someone and share with them, yeah, well, that's good. I'm, you know, it's good to know what you think. But this is what the Bible says. And all of a sudden, it's like something just lit up. Oh, wow. You mean I've been believing wrong all this time? Well, I don't know if you've been believing wrong, but I, I can show you what the Bible says. God is going to do the convicting. And then you have those that just sit there like, <laughs> yeah, whatever, you know, I know what I believe. I believe this and I believe that, and, and that's not my God. And, and, and so what do you do? Still captive to their thought process. Still captive. And what we want to do is to develop and train obedient soldiers for Jesus Christ. That is the result of taking people captive. See, the key is being successful in spiritual warfare is becoming proficient in wielding the sword of God, which is, which is the Word of God, against the lies and, the, and, and, and all those things that people believe. And it's impossible to fight error without knowing the truth. you got to know the truth. We are constantly focusing on the Bible, on God's Word. We don't take it and make all our own thoughts and ideas and what I believe and what, what other people believe. This is what the Bible is teaching. And so just as soldiers train constantly, soldiers are constantly training. When I was on the Coral Sea, I was on an aircraft carrier, and we were constantly training. Wake up, you know, 12 hours on, 12 hours off. And the planes would take off and planes would land. We'd bring them down. They'd work them. And, and I mean, it was just a constant thing out at sea. And we never knew. Uh, there was one time that we were actually involved in a scrimmage, and I, I don't remember exactly what took place, but, but we didn't even know. Because yeah. they would launch the Alert 5. They would say, all right, let's launch the Alert 5, another training, another test. And, uh, we, would just, and we would do that. It, but but that's, what people, that's what the warrior does. Can you imagine having the military just sitting around? Okay, there's no war today. All right, well, let's just all sit around, eat, get fat, party. You know, let's have a good time. Every military personnel will tell you that whenever they're on duty, they're working. They're sharpening their sword. They're being proficient. They're memorizing how to break down their, their AR, how to put it back together, how to, how to shoot, and never actually ever shooting at a person, but constantly on target. Beloved, you need to be proficient in the Word. And it is amazing on how many people say, well, you know, it says so in the Bible somewhere that, that, that God loves those who help themselves or something like that. God loves the whole world. Amen. And God loves everybody. Everybody's going to heaven. Amen. And you have to be proficient, constantly studying the scriptures. Only the power of God's truth can smash the lies of Satan's false system. And you know where the system is 
really most false in. But we, are, we already know that the world, you know, the way they operate, you know, they, they're under a whole different system. But the system that Paul is talking about and the system that he's talking to is in the church. Beloved, we have to be accurate in God's word. We have to be focused on God's word. I mentioned a little while ago that we've been going through this reformed theological change. It's happened, it happened 10 years ago. I was more of a, um, a topical preacher. I would get a topic and then go all over the place looking for verses in the Bible. And if the verse didn't fit, I would try a different translation. Sometimes I tried translation that wasn't really a translation, but more of a paraphrase. It, well, that sounds good. You know, and they have all these words. There's, there's, there are Bibles that, that were translations or paraphrases, I should say. That, that can actually work, but when you get down to the nitty-gritty of the Greek original thought, you come to realize, that doesn't work, but it's okay. It's okay, because I'm trying to make a point. Yeah. I'm trying to, and, and what happened, we had people. This place was filled. People were coming. We were enjoying a, a good time and service, but something happened within me. I realized, you know, this is not what God's Word is saying, and, and it's kind of like what happened to Martin Luther. Martin Luther was saying, God's Word doesn't say that. You can't buy your way out of purgatory. Where does it say we have purgatory? You can't buy your way out of, of hell. You can't pay your way into heaven. This is not right, Luther said. He wasn't trying to start another religion. Martin Luther was trying to get the church back to where it's supposed to be. And what took place in my life over 10 years ago was exactly that. And in that process, we've been working through this. And it's amazing because in that process, up to this point, right now, when it is needed most of all, God has blessed this church. And we want you, beloved, if you don't have a place to visit or a place to, to, to worship, to make this place a place where you can understand what this Reformed theology is and understand how it applies to your life. Because it's the power of God, the truth of God. You see, in Ephesians chapter 6, and I did mention, I'm just going to be able to give you just a little bit briefly on this. We'll have to go through the book of Ephesians in order to dive into the full armor of God. But he says to them in Ephesus, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, we're not out there with guns and knives and swords and, and all kinds of stuff, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Our battle is not against you and I, it's behind the scene. I don't have a problem with people that are uh, Republicans or Democrats or this life matters, that life matters. That's not our problem, beloved. We are being used as pawns by these cosmic forces. We are being used as pawns by these rulers, by these authorities. We're being used as pawns by this present darkness. And all our battles are against all of this and, it, and all of it. All of it is up against our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and his bride. Human wisdom, human reason, human plans, human strategies, organizations, skills, eloquence, marketing, religious showmanship, philosophical and psychological speculations, ritualism, pragmatism, or mysticism are all ineffective weapons against this present darkness. None of that is going to work. None of it. And so what we need to be is true to the Word of God. True to the Word of God. Look at this next verse. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth 
and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. You see, the belt of truth holds everything together. The belt holds everything together. Now, some of you guys are probably thinking, okay, well, I wear belts sometimes. Sometimes I wear suspenders. But you have to understand what Paul is referring to in the battle that he's talking about, the spiritual armor. And he's talking about a soldier. He's talking about how these soldiers would have these long cloaks that would drag all the way to the floor. And before they went into battle, they would grab the corners of this thing and they would gird it up underneath the belt, cinch the belt, so that this way they had the ability not only to carry their blanket, their home, their sleeping bag in a sense, but at the same time fight with it. And you put everything in this belt of truth. Everything is held together by this belt of truth. Beloved, you need truth. We need truth. And truth should change a man. Truth should be known that it causes you to change. See, truth never changes. Truth changes me. Say that with me. Truth never changes. Truth changes me. And that is what truth does. There's a lot of intellect. There's a lot of information. There's a lot of things that sound good. And it's acquired knowledge, knowledge that was true or thought people was thought to be true. Like, for instance, there was a time that the truth was that the world was flat, okay? It's, you know, I, I just recently found out that there's still some people that think that the world is flat. I, I, really, there is a flat earth society out there. Okay. <laughs> but we've already known that that's not true. The world is, is round. And then we come to find out that's the truth. Oh, no, no, wait, the world is not round. It's oval. And there was, a, there was a truth that the world was the center of the universe. And now we find out that, no, the world is not the center of the universe. It's the sun that's the center of the universe. Everything goes around the world, no. Everything goes around the sun. And every time, see, that's acquired knowledge. And so it's true for that moment because it's not really truth, but it's just acquired knowledge. It's what I've learned to be true, and it's not necessarily true. And science is always going to disappoint you, always, because it is always changing. Look at our science, what it's done to us today. But Scripture is always true. And so the, the, the Scripture says that we put on, and, and like I said, there's so much more that I can get into in that, but the breastplate of righteousness that is what I wanted to talk about. And this breastplate was either made out of cloth with hanging shells or, or hooves of animals to kind of protect, and it was very important, but the most modern and common, excuse me, the most common breastplate was made out of metal, pounded metal that went about from here to about here. And it, it's kind of like a uh, bulletproof vest for a police officer. You'll notice these, they, they look like these vests are too small, but they're guarding very specific parts. See, for the Roman soldier, it was believed that the heart was the center of our thinking process. It was the heart. And that, and that the, the entrails, or, or, or as they, they called it, the bowels, were the emotional part. Because... I, I'm sure you felt this when you get emotional, something happens, it's like your bowels, just, you, know, you know, you get sad, you can feel it way deep down inside, and so they believed that that's where the emotions were at, and they needed to protect that, and there was a protection against that, and Paul is saying this, is you've got to put on this breastplate of righteousness to guard your thinking and your emotions, the emotional part. Now, we believe that Many people believe it's the helmet of salvation that is blocking or thinking, or helping us block the, the enemy from our mind, but that's not the place where everything was at. Our thought process and our emotions was right here. And it was important because there were, many of the battles were fought with swords, sharp knives that were very small, and, and you had to keep yourself at least protected in that area. 
And so God has provided this breastplate of righteousness to protect your mind and to protect your emotions. And there's at least three ways that we can look at this righteousness. The first way of looking at it is, is as self-righteousness. There are a lot of people that are self-righteous. A lot of people think, you know, I, I'm good, I'm great, everything's good. And Satan's ultimate goal is to destroy men and women, preventing them from becoming citizens of heaven. How does Satan attempt to achieve that goal? By having people believe they're going to heaven because they're good deeds. I'm going to heaven because I am good. I'm going to heaven because I've done good things. I go to church. I've given money. I'm going to heaven because, well, because of what I've done. This self-righteousness. There's, I don't have to go to church. I, I can just be good. God still loves me. He's not going to send me to hell. And Satan is okay with that thinking. You believe in God all you want. I believe in God. These people tell me all the time. I don't have to go to church to prove that. I don't have to go to worship. I can worship wherever I want. This is a self-righteousness. There's another righteousness which we know as imputed righteousness. In other words, it's righteousness that's been given to you. And this righteousness refers to God's clothing a person in the righteousness of Christ at the moment of salvation. It's what Paul talks about as he's describing how it is that we are righteous before God. We're made right. But there's another righteousness that I want to talk to you about, and it's called a practical righteousness. While the imputed righteousness makes us right before God, and ultimately it's the, it's, we're victors over Satan, and that is what gets us into heaven, but it's this practical righteousness this daily living, this Reformed theological thinking for practical living that I need every single day. And this practical righteousness enables you to win the daily battles that are out there and, and helps you to practice holy living. This practical righteousness is a holiness that you acquire as you get closer and closer to God through His Word. In Philippians 3, Paul says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I press on. Don't know if you've ever seen these races where runners and sprinters are sprinting as fast as they can, and they press on, and they, they try to get over the finish line before the other person. And Paul is not talking about this race ever ending. This race that he's pressing on toward is a constant race, and you continue to press on, keep going and running as fast as you can to try to get to the place that you need to be. And that is to be more like Jesus Christ. That is our ultimate goal, beloved, is to be more like Jesus. See, true Christianity has no breathing time. There's no time for a truce. There's no time for rest and recreation. On weekends as well, uh, on weekdays as well as on Sundays, in private as well as in public, at home, by the family fire, as well as wherever we may be. We have to do all these things, all these little things that we consider little, like, like manage the, uh, the tongue and the temper of our life, as well as the things of the world, the things of our, that we are committed to. But this breastplate of righteousness, this, this competency that we need to have, we need to put on the whole armor of God. Paul says this in verses 13 and 14, Therefore, take up the full armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm, Stand therefore, having fastened the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The last thing I want to share with you, beloved, is number four, I must be calculating. I must be calculating. Being ready to punish every disobedience, Paul says, when your obedience is complete. Paul says, you know, this is, this is something that you have to calculate. You just can't be jumping and flying off the handle and 
get into people's faces because of things that you got to do this at the right time, right place. You know, and Paul could have. He could have ultimately just punished them every single time he saw them. He had plenty of reason to do so. Paul had the courage and the competence to punish every disobedience at Christ. He would not allow anybody else to destroy the church. But he always had the discipline to wait until the church's obedience was complete. You've completed that obedience. Here's something else that we need to work on. We've gotten this far. Here's something else that we need to work on. In verse 15 of Ephesians chapter 6, it says, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Gospel, good news. Jesus Christ died on the cross. Peace. Now you have peace with God. You're no longer aliens. You're no longer at, at, uh, at odds with God. You're no longer enemies of God. You, you have peace with God. You can stand firm in that everything that God said and promised to you will come to fruition. Verses 16 and 17. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. Once again, you know, this, this is showing the competence or the calculating. I got to take up the shield of faith because these darts are going to keep coming at me, which Paul says, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. You have to understand that it's by faith that we stand, by faith that we know that he's coming, by faith that I know that one day I'll spend eternity with him. And everything that Satan has will tell you it's different. Everything that Satan has control of in this world will focus on that which is not true. That's why the shield of faith is important. Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Here's the last thing I want to share with you, beloved, in verse 18 and 19. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplications, to the end, keep alert with perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. We need to persevere. We can't fold. The battle is not over. It continues. And it'll get the best of you if you're not ready. It's not just a one Sunday training event. This is a daily, constant battle. And I encourage you, I implore you to be a part of the Bible study that we have on Wednesday night and anything else that you can get involved in. And we, we can start doing some, some more theological training, and we're going to start that here pretty soon, doing on Sunday night. You want to know what, the, uh, what uh, Reformed theology is? Well, come by on, on Sunday nights, and we'll work it. You have, you've heard what people have said. There's all kinds of information out there. People have uh, run from it. You know, oh, no, no, I'm not, that's not the way I believe. What's, what's good? It's, under, it's important to know what you believe. It really is. But what does the Bible say? You know, and then let's look at what the Bible says. And, and I just want to ask you in verses 19 and 20, not, not only pray for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador and in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul starts off by looking at this portion of his last few verse chapters, 10, 11, and 12, and 13. He's, he's looking at these chapters and says, look, there's a spiritual battle out there, and we have to be ready for it. Here's how you can do this. You need to be compassionate. You need to be courageous. You need to be competent. You need to be calculated. And when you understand that you are not fighting demons, it's ideologies that you're fighting. And where do these ideologies come from? Well, they do come from demons. It does come from Satan. But we're not looking for... Uh, demons in the dark. We're not looking for demons in people's lives. We're looking for what their thought process is, and we approach it with the truth, with the gospel message, with God's word. 
Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, it is pretty radical because everything else that you've learned and everything else that people have taught you about uh, spiritual warfare seems to contradict what God's Word just said, but look at the Word of God. It's ideologies, it's philosophies, it's ideas, it's things in this world that seem to be taking its toll, not in the world, but within the church. Beloved, let me ask you to stand as we conclude this portion. Many of you are experiencing a, a, a lot of oppression, a lot of things that are going on in life. And Father, I know that uh, the prayer requests that we've had just recently for Sylvia and her son, and, and, I, and I pray for little Ernie, and for Lucille and her operation, for Joan, Father, for Ralph, for those that uh, are struggling, and I pray lift up to you my mom as well, and, and the, the pains that she's going through even now, and, and for all our families that, are, that have been so uh, just torn apart right now. We're no longer one family, one church. We're in various places, different places, and everybody is, is looking after themselves. But God, you can, you can unite us, and you can bind us. And we pray, God, that you help us to, to identify. The only way we can identify these thoughts and philosophies and the things that people's minds are going through, the only way we can identify that is through your word, to shine the light of Scripture within our own lives, within the lives of those that we love, and to be proficient and competent in your word, protecting the, our thought process, our emotional process with the breastplate of righteousness. So, Father, I ask that you lead us today as we continue on throughout this day to keep focused upon you and, and, and hoping, God, in, in the expectation of your return. Not a hope like I wish, but an expectation, knowing that it's going to happen. And we know that you'll be here soon. So thank you once again for this day, for, the, for our time together, Father. And we just pray that you uh, minister to each person through your word in all things, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone says, amen. amen. All right, let me just read this to you here as we conclude today's service. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel, and you shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen? Amen.